It's always good to be with you at Osterville Baptist Church. We're going to look at John 14 that ties right in with the uh, song that Kimo just sang. It deals with the heart. In fact, these five chapters, 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 of John, all really deal with the heart. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the, um, on the bottom of the chair in front of you, and if you turn to page 901, 901, that's where John 14 is found. I just came to uh, recognize this song in the last couple of weeks, and when I heard it, I thought, boy, that just really ties into John 14. And so uh, I asked Kimo if he would be willing to sing that for us. Some of you recognize the name of Danny Goki. Uh, he became very famous uh, in the eighth season of American Idol uh, back in about 2009. And he won many hearts over, not only with his uh, Christian testimony, but also it was discovered that his wife had died uh, just four weeks before he auditioned for the program um, with what was supposed to be uh, not major heart surgery, but she died on the table. And so when he came into American Idol, he was still identifying with all that had happened and all the healing process that he had just begun. And uh, he fell in love with this song as well. And I think he's the one that made it quite famous on contemporary Christian radio. It was written by Phillips, Craig, and Dean. And there's really a powerful story in the background uh, of what uh, caused this song to be written. And uh, perhaps you've heard it, maybe not, but you can certainly Google it and see several uh, testimonies of it uh, on YouTube. Apparently, there was a pastor in Ohio who had a heart surgeon in his church. And the one thing this pastor, for some reason, always wanted to see was an open heart surgery. And so he asked the uh, surgeon if there were an opportunity for some time for him to actually watch an open heart surgery taking place. Well, the day of heart surgery arrived and they rolled the patient in, uh, opened her chest cavity, and then they took her heart out as they do in open heart surgery and, and repaired it. And before they closed the chest cavity, uh, they of course massage the heart and make sure it starts beating again before the chest cavity is closed but the heart wouldn't start beating. And they did everything they could to get it to beat, but it just wouldn't start beating. So the surgeon did something most unusual. He got down on his knees by the patient. He took off his surgeon mask and he said, Mrs. Johnson, this is your surgeon. The operation went perfect. Your heart has been repaired. Mrs. Johnson, there is nothing wrong with your heart now. If you can hear me, I need to tell you to tell your heart to beat again. 
Within seconds, the heart started beating and the chest cavity was sewn up and she came through the surgery just fine. Now, when I heard the testimony, I couldn't help but relate it to our spiritual heart, our spiritual lives, and how the voice of the enemy comes to us usually at our most vulnerable moment, and we listen to him, and sometimes we feel so defeated, so discouraged, so down, even ready to give, throw the towel in and quit, and we need to be told to tell our spiritual heart to beat again by his power. God wants us to believe again, to have hope again, faith again, and to rest in him. And even though God, the great physician, the surgeon, has saved us, and he's repaired our hearts when we come to trust him as our savior, and he immerses us in his grace, sometimes it takes you and me to simply look right at our innermost being and tell our heart to beat again. 50 years ago, a little bit plus, I was in a seminary classroom. And it's one of those times that you don't remember the text, you don't even remember the name of the, of the speaker. I just know that he was an aged, white-haired man speaking to us in chapel. And I remember him kind of leaning over the pulpit and just looking at us, and then from his heart, he said these words, remember men, in every pew, there is a troubled heart. I remember as a young man hearing that, and it just, for some reason, stuck with me. And then I would soon become a pastor, and I can remember back in those days, you didn't have worship teams and things. You normally had a choir. You had what were called pulpit chairs, and the pastor would come out, and he would sit in the chair before the service began. And I can remember doing that for years. And then I'd go down uh, the pews, and I would just start looking around, and I often remembered, if not always remembered, his words on that Sunday service. And I'd say, yep, there's a troubled heart. There's another troubled heart. And sure enough, you could almost say amen to what he said, in every pew there's a troubled heart. You don't have to live very long, you don't have to be a pastor to realize the truth of those words. You and I know that when we become a Christian, that doesn't make troubles go away. In fact, really, they intensify, don't they? The battle just, just increases. I was talking to a brother this morning before the service uh, that told me of a group that had been meeting together regularly, and about 25, but uh, this is a few years ago, but 23 are no longer walking with God. And somewhere along the way, something came in and stole their, their spiritual walk, their spiritual heart. Job is a man associated with trials and trouble, and in Job 5-7 we read, yet man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. So true. Now the Lord Jesus Christ knew that his disciples were going to have a troubled heart. If you take the Gospel of John 
And he tells us why he wrote it, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. The 21 chapters break down very easily. In chapters 1 to 12, he reveals himself to the world. But in chapter 13 to 17, he reveals himself to his own. He takes the disciples up to the upper room of Jerusalem with the Passover. He institutes uh, what will be for us the Lord's table that we observe. And then in chapters 18 to 20, you have the, 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 the rest, the crucifixion, the resurrection. Then chapter 1's the epilogue when he teaches his disciples um, after his, his resurrection. But in chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, uh, I think we find some of the most intimate words of the expression of the heart of God that we can find in the Word of God. And I think what he's really saying to these disciples, he wants them to have his heart, and his heart is the heart of the Father. And so he's telling us what kind of heart he wants us to have. And he begins by acknowledging the fact that these disciples are going to go through a time where they have a very troubled heart. It's interesting in John 14, verse 1, he starts with, let not your heart be troubled. And then if you jump down to verse uh, 27 of the same chapter, you see that he ends uh, about peace, and then he says, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So what I want to do on these uh, next two Sundays with you, Lord willing, as Pastor Rob and family are away on vacation, I, I want us to look at this matter of having a troubled heart, but then our response to that telling our, our heart to beat again. Today it's going to be kind of a little bit of a downer because we're going to deal mostly with what causes a troubled heart. And let me just say this, if you've come to the service today and you would say, yeah, I've got a troubled heart, I think what you're going to find, whether today or last week or next week, when you have a troubled heart, that any troubled heart you have that you can pinpoint why you think you have that troubled heart is going to fall under uh, these four causes that I share with you this morning. So let's begin with the first one and the causes for a troubled heart, and it's simply disloyalty. And the person that stands out for us as the example of this is Judas Iscariot. You know that a text taking out of context is a pretext. And so we want to keep within the context and not just start listing causes, but in the context, what were the reasons these disciples had a troubled heart? And with Judas, I think we could certainly say disloyalty. And the reason Jesus had a troubled heart as well is because of the disloyalty of one of his own. So we go back to chapter 13, just preceding John 14, 1, and we read in 13, 18, I remember he's still in the upper room. And he says, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. And that's taken, of course, from a prophetic psalm. Jumping down to verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. That means he had a troubled heart doesn't mean if you have a troubled heart, you're sinning. Otherwise, Jesus would have been a sinner. But we know Jesus was sinless, and yet sinless Son of God had a, was troubled in his spirit, in his heart. And what troubled our Savior's heart? Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will 
betray me. So Jesus announces that one of his own 12 would be disloyal to him. And he knew what it was to be troubled in heart. I think this matter of disloyalty is broad enough to cover so many specific items. It can be the unfaithfulness of a husband to his wife or a wife to her husband. It could be how a child feels when dad walks out of the home. The child doesn't see it as dad and mom don't get along. It's dad's deserted me. Dad's walked out on me. Some never recover from that. I was with another man in prison. I met with three of them on Thursday. This one was the first time I met with this particular one. 28 years old, he's in for murder. And his dad walked out when he was 13. He said, I never got over it. It can be a son or daughter who rebels against the parents. You pour your heart into your son, your daughter, and you give it the best shot you have, and you love them, you train them up in the scriptures, then they go away and they come back and they're a different person. They've walked away from everything that you have taught them and raised them in. It can be a boss or friend who betrays your confidence. And when any of this happens to you, that someone, and usually someone close, has been disloyal to you, it brings about a troubled, aching heart. Sometimes the person you take a bullet for is behind the trigger, and that's what hurts so deeply. I think the last words that Jesus spoke to Judas on earth was when he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And you remember Judas came with the soldiers and he put that kiss of betrayal to identify Jesus. And when he did that, you remember what Jesus said? He looked right at Judas's eyes. Now keep in mind that same night he had washed Judas's feet. He washed all the feet of the disciples. He knew when he looked at Judas and was washing his feet, serving him, that Judas had betrayed him. Sometimes I think on that and I think, you know, I would have washed his feet too, but with boiling water probably or something. But Jesus' heart just keeps reaching out to Judas. And then when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus looks at him and he says what? Friend, why did you do what you came to do? You don't belong with them. You're supposed to be one of us. Disloyalty. There's a second cause for a troubled heart, and it's death itself. And here we see that the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who's going to die. So we even go back a few verses in John 12, 27. Jesus says, now is my soul troubled. There it is again, a troubled heart. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. We jump to 1321, which we read a minute ago. Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Verse 33, saying, I'm going where I'm going, you can't come. Keep in mind, we are 15 to 18 hours at the most away from the arrest, the betrayal, the kiss, the crucifixion 
only 15 to 8 hours. He knew that his death would be the cause to his own disciples. And when we speak of death being the cause for a troubled heart, I think we can speak of the whole area of disease, of sickness, and of death itself, even either in ourselves or someone we love very much. When the doctor looks at you after the test and says, it's malignant, it's advanced, you don't just take that with a hum-haw. Or when your wife comes home and says, honey, it's malignant. Or whatever the situation is, you cannot remain indifferent at a time like these. Speaks of death, sickness, suffering, ultimately death. And as Jesus looked in just a few hours, when he would hang on the cross, And I can't help but think that when Jesus left that upper room and probably came out the eastern gate and walked down that slope, it was at the Passover time. And historians say that at this time of Passover, there would be 250,000 Passover lambs slain in the temple. Think of all the blood. And they had a conduit running out of the temple down underneath so the blood would go down and go into the Kidron Brook. And with a quarter million lambs slain, that Kidron Brook had to be red with the blood of the lambs. And as Jesus walked across that and looked at that, he knew that that blood of the Passover lambs was the blood was speaking about his own blood that he would shed in just 15 hours or so. And his heart was troubled because he would be separated from the fellowship of the Father for the first time in all eternity. He also knew it would be his death would be a cause for a troubled heart for his disciples because they were confused as to where he was going and why they couldn't go with him. So when you love somebody and they're dying, You don't remain indifferent. Your heart aches. Your heart bleeds. You have a troubled heart. This leads to a third cause for a troubled heart, which I call simply disappointment. And disappointment relates to the disciples. Sometimes you read and read verses, you know them well. Jesus said, come and follow me. And they left their nets and they followed him. He says to Matthew, follow me. And Matthew, follow. And we go down through that list. And it it almost seems trivial to us. But it would be the same thing today if some of you who are in a very secure and well-paying job and everything was just stable, and he looks at you and says, leave it all and follow me, and you go in and you resign from your job because you're seeing that the the Roman oppression is going to be overthrown. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the answer to all the Old Testament prophecies. He's going to establish his kingdom, and I'm going to be right there with him reigning in that kingdom. Now instead of a kingdom and instead of a king, there's a cross, the most humiliating death of the Roman Empire. And the disciples are all disappointed, very disappointed in what has happened with what they perceive the change of plans. Why do you get disappointed? 
Why do disappointments come? I think simply because our expectations are at a certain level, and when reality doesn't match them, then disappointment sets in. Sometimes disappointment comes because of others. Sometimes we're disappointed in our loved ones, in our children, our grandchildren, in our parents. Disappointed in leaders. Disappointments come many times because of others. Sometimes we're just so disappointed with ourselves. Do you ever just get plain disgusted with yourself? How can I say that? How can I think that? How can I do that? You know better. I know better. We know the level should be here, but sometimes we come in down here and we're disappointed. And we probably don't want to admit it, but sometimes we're probably disappointed with God himself. Phil Yancey writes about these times in his book, Disappointment with God. He says, disappointment with God does not come only in dramatic circumstances. For me, it also edges unexpectedly into the mundaneness of everyday life. I start to wonder whether God cares about everyday details about me. I am tempted to pray less often, having concluded in advance that it won't really matter, or will it? My emotions and my faith waver. Once those doubts seep in, I am even less prepared for times of major crisis. Does God really care about your troubled heart today? Does he really care? And if it's something that is not extreme or major, but you still have that troubled heart, does God care about that minutia in your life? Sometimes we doubt that he does. I had one of the most wonderful Christian brothers I know in another city far away. And he wrote me this week about this very thing, not knowing I had just penned these words. And I sent this quote to him. And he's a great Christian man and leader. But somehow the enemy had just came in and and, and he was disappointed in himself. He was disappointed even with God. Does God really care of this, what I'm dealing with right now? Disappointment is a cause for a troubled heart. The fourth one is disobedience. And Simon Peter becomes our focal point here. When Peter heard Jesus say that he was going away... In John 13, verse 33, little children, you know, while I'm with you, you'll seek me. But now, as I said to you, where I am going, you cannot come. You notice that he asked a couple of questions. Verse 36, Simon Peter said, Lord, where are you going? And then Peter said to him, verse 37, Lord, why cannot I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Where are you going and why can't I go with you? And then he adds this. If it is a matter of loyalty, though all others are offended, John might fail you, Matthew might fail you, but Lord, I will be faithful to death. Why can't I go with you? And in verse 38, Jesus brings Peter's feet back to the ground again. He says, will you lay down your life for me? Truly I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. 
I think I'm correct in saying, if you compare all four Gospels in the upper room discourse, Peter never opens his mouth again. I think he's pouting. I think he's angry. Why do I say that? Because I think Peter meant exactly what he said at the time. I will lay down my life for you. Now, anyone can say that. But when that hour comes of a choice to be made, Peter made the wrong choice. And so he's very angry. And then we remember when he's standing there at the coals of fire and denies the Lord. And then he sees Jesus going from one judgment hall to another. And it says, Jesus looked at him. And Judas, Peter wept. Peter wept. I call that the look that broke Simon Peter's heart. All he did was just look at him. I have a feeling that was a look not of, I told you so. I think it was a look of compassion, of love. Peter, I'll still heal your broken heart. But he was rebellious, disobedient. I think the most unhappy person in here this morning is not the one who isn't a child of God. I think it's the child of God who isn't walking with God. I think you're the most miserable person here today. And you know what? We've all been in your shoes at one time or another, haven't we? I can remember probably the worst time was just that first year when I was saved. And I didn't get grounded and discipled. I was transferred to my job. It had been a year out of the army and I was going to a new city. And, and anyway, I went back to my old life. Basically doing what I did before I was saved. And then I went to visit my brother Ted in, in Richmond, Virginia. And I borrowed his second car. And I was going down in Richmond, Virginia. And I liked music, so I turned the radio on. But instead of music, my brother had his radio station set on a Christian radio station. I think I told this story a few years ago here. But it, I never come to this that I don't think of it. And there was an old Southern evangelist by the name of Dr. Oliver B. Green. And he was what you used to call a hellfire brimstone preacher. And he preached also against sin. I mean, he really would let you have it. And he was going to town, and he was preaching about sin. And I fit right into what he was. I mean to tell you, it was he and I were the only ones together. And I'm thinking to myself, driving down that street in Richmond, how in the world does this guy I've never met, never heard of before, know anything about me? And then I got tired of listening to what he was saying, and I went to turn the radio down. Honest to goodness, as soon as I did, here's what came out of that radio. Don't you touch that radio dial. <laughs> now, I learned later on, after I became a person that listened to him quite regularly later on, I remember then, in listening, he'd say that quite often. But I, I didn't know that. That wasn't in my memory. I, this is the first time. Don't you touch that radio. And you know what? I had enough of the fear of God in me. I didn't touch it. I, did, I didn't turn it. I thought, this is, it was like a fourth person of the Trinity coming outside the radio at me. And I just put up with what he, what he had to say. That wasn't fun. I was so miserable. 
And it just was misery city. I'm neither fish, I'm not fowl, I'm not a Philistine, I'm not an Israelite. Who am I? Where is my allegiance? Where is my identification? And it's a miserable time when you're not walking with God. Maybe you've suffered spiritual failure this week. Maybe even moral failure. I don't know where you've walked. I don't know where you've been. Or maybe your attitude toward the things of the Lord has just grown rather negative or passive or you have a disobedient spirit, but you have a troubled heart and God doesn't want that for you. He says to us at this hour what he said to Peter, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Tell your heart to beat again. I know I've told this story a few years ago here, but I never come to the passage, I don't think of it, and it's a man by the name of Robert Robinson, who was a rebellious young person, but he came to faith in Christ under the great preaching of uh, the evangelist George Whitfield. And later on, Robert became a pastor and he wrote a few hymns, one of which we have sung here quite often, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. It was written in 1757. But later on, this pastor, Robert Robinson, uh, wandered from the Lord and apparently felt in his heart he had failed so miserably and sinned so grievously, he couldn't return to the Lord. It was said that he was riding in a stagecoach. And by the way, you can uh, Google this on YouTube and you'll see a reenactment of the story if you put his name in. And by that time, he's an old man. And he's riding in the stagecoach and there is a young lady sitting across from him who didn't know who he was, but she sensed he had a troubled heart. And she said to him, sir, I perceive you have a very troubled heart. Could I read some words to you that have meant a lot to me? And he nodded yes, and she began reading the words, come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. And then she went on to, oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. We've all been there. Prone to leave the God I love. And she couldn't go on to the next word when he interrupted her. And he said to him, Madam, I'm the poor unhappy man who wrote that hymn many years ago. And I'd give a thousand worlds if I had them to enjoy the feelings I had then. It is said that she responded to him, Sir, the streams of mercy are still flowing. And you know what? If your life isn't right with God today, they're still flowing for you as well. Don't turn off the message. Don't turn the radio dial. That doesn't change the problem. God wants you to come to him. So causes for a, for a troubled heart, we've seen uh, four of them. Going from disloyalty, death, disappointment, and disobedience. And next week we're going to spend our time on the cure for a troubled heart. But we're at least just going to get started with one thought to, to this morning and then we'll we'll close it down and pick it up next week so if we move to the cure for a troubled heart i think the very first principle is there has to be faith in a personal lord now we actually get to john 14 
I don't know of a passage of scripture other than possibly Psalm 23 that has brought more comfort to troubled hearts than John 14 in the New Testament. And so he begins by saying, let not or literally stop letting your heart be troubled. You believe in God, well believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, but I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way, and you know where I'm going. And Thomas said, we don't have a clue. We don't know the way, and we don't know where you're going. Show us the way. How can we know the way? Then Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. So Jesus is imploring them to have personal trust in himself. In a sense, as a Jewish disciple, they believed that a sovereign providential God had it all mapped out for the future, but the problem they were dealing with was the present life right now. And Jesus saying, just as you say you have had faith in God, Almighty God, of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, believe also in me. I and my Father are one. You believe in God, believe also in me. Belief or faith is the answer, in one sense, to every problem of the human heart. It begins with the point action of faith. Because most talk about a spiritual journey from the time they're born and maybe a grandmother teaches them the scripture or a Sunday school or a pastor or they read a book or they went to a university Christian uh, fellowship or whatever. But somewhere along the way, we have to come to that, what I call point action of faith, where I say, yes, for myself, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as my personal savior. Have you done that? Have you come to that point action of faith? Bip, I trust Christ and I pass from death unto life. And when you do, that's the beginning. You are born again. You're now a spiritual infant in the family of God. And now you continue to grow in faith. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. I start by faith and, and it's faith that helps me walk on. I keep on having to grow in faith, increase in faith. Jesus tells him now that you've got to believe in me. You've got to believe that I know what I'm doing when I say I've got to go away. He's going to get more information in this chapter next week. You've got to believe that I'm going, and I'm going there to, to prepare a dwelling place for you for all eternity. Just think of that. The Lord Jesus has you in mind if you're his child. He's got a mansion, a dwelling place, an apartment, a home, whatever that he's preparing for you. And as the master carpenter himself prepares these dwelling places, imagine what they're going to be. 
About 40 years ago, I saw seven giants of the faith receive honorary doctor of divinity degrees out of the Midwestern Christian University. The youngest of the seven was 84 years old. They are from 84 up to the high 90s. Powerful men, you'd recognize probably every name. And one of the men that received it was also the youngest. He was 84, as I recall it. His name was Ira Stamphill. And all you music lovers gotta love Ira Stamphill. He washed my eyes with tears, such a powerful song. But I suppose the one he's more known for than anything else is when he wrote, I'm satisfied with just a cottage below, a little silver and a little gold, but in that city when the ransom will shine, I want a gold one that's silver lined. And then you know the chorus, I've got a mansion over the hilltop in that bright land where we'll never grow old. And someday yonder we will never more wonder, but walk on streets that are purest gold. When I think of that truth in that song, that Jesus has gone and prepared a place for us, and they talk about streets of gold and pearly gates and things like this, I always reflect on the precious times Muriel and our two girls had when we would visit 108 Pine Street in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, home of the groundhog. They were great times, usually every Thanksgiving, but several times during the year. We haven't been back since 1982 to visit that home on 108 Pine Street, Punxsutawney, because on March 14, 1982, mom changed her residence from 108 Pine Street to heaven, and she's with the Lord since then. I can remember driving up and we'd pull in the back in a little alley and that's where we'd park our car and mom would just be waiting for us. I could smell the pork chops when I was down in Indiana, Pennsylvania, 30 miles away. <laughs> she'd always make that as our first meal, it was my favorite meal she made. And then she'd be out there with a big hug. Now I say that simply to say, the house was nothing. I think she bought it for $17,000. The house was nothing. Mom made the house something. Mom lived there. And when mom went to heaven, the house didn't really mean much of anything anymore. No reason to visit Wanaweed Pine Street. Last night, Mira and I were listening to Michael English sing then I saw Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac. I talked to Mark, and I saw Timothy. And then I said, Timothy, I want to see Jesus. He's the one who died for me. That's what makes heaven, heaven. I don't know about you, but I really could care less about gold roads or pearly gates. That means absolutely nothing to me. Jesus means it all. To be with him. To be with Abraham, Noah, David, John, Savannah Rolla, Zwingli, Calvin, D.O. Moody, Whitfield, 
and to ask questions and to enjoy the fellowship and the blessedness of the Lord and his people. That's what makes heaven so sweet. Are you going there? Do you know for certain? Let's close it out. Thomas says, I need some clarification. So he asked two questions. Verse 5, where are you going? What's the way? Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Verse 6, no man comes to the Father but by me. Now for the believer, these words are encouraging. For the unbeliever, the implication is great. So exclusive. I'm the only way. People don't mind if you say you're a Christian. But if you ever say he is the only way and everyone else is lost and on their way to hell, you expect a battle, my friend. Expect a conflict. There's no toleration for that exclusivity. But Jesus said it on the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come unto the Father but through me. So we know how Adam and Eve enjoyed the way to God, the truth of God, and they possessed life. And then they lost those three privileges when they sinned. Now they enjoyed lack of fellowship with God, alienation. They fell into falsehood and error instead of truth. And instead of life, they died spiritually. And wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world and death through sin, so death passed upon all men. For all have sinned as children of our first parents. There is every son and daughter born of man and woman, born of that sin nature. But Jesus gives us these three great truths that the Lord Jesus Christ brings us back to God. He is the way. Instead of falsehood and error, Jesus said, I am the truth. And instead of death, I come to give you eternal life. It is so crucial for us to know these truths, not only that we can make our heart beat again, but especially when we come to that hour of death. But how would the assurance of going to heaven, having that place prepared for them, how would that help calm the disciples' troubled hearts in the here and now? Dr. James M. Gray put it beautifully in a song when he wrote years ago, who could mind the journey when the road leads home. The assurance of a heavenly home at the end of life's bumpy road enables us to bear joyfully with the trials which come our way. Who can mind the journey when the road leads home? I travel a lot internationally, as you know, and I do know this. When I'm coming home and I get on that plane, I may have a few delays here and there, but I know I'm on my way home. There's no better feeling. I'm on my way home. And we're all on our journey. This home is not our home. We're just a passing through. We're on the way to the eternal home where Christ has prepared that place and he's waiting for us. And some days coming back, he said, I'm going to take you up to be with me and you're going to be with me forever. Faith in a personal Lord is step number one making your heart beat again. Would you bow with me in prayer, please?